Well, greetings, everybody, and welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Fredland, and today's topic will be part four of five of Jonathan Little's book, Secrets of Professional Tournament Poker, Volume 1. Today, we're looking at Chapter 9, which is a a long chapter talking about a, a number of miscellaneous topics. So it's a super interesting discussion, super interesting chapter. I uh, really welcome you to check it out, and uh, I think it's going to help your game quite a bit. Before then, uh, just a few announcements. First of all, thank you to our sponsors, Running Aces, who is our official sponsor, Next Level Poker, who is our official tour, and they are led by World Series of Poker bracelet winner Chris Fox Wallace. Another partner of ours is the brand new Poker is Fun Tour, led by Minnesota Poker Hall of Famer Mike Schneider. And Mike, congratulations on a successful first weekend. Sound like it was a great time. Wasn't able to make it down to Canterbury, but it sounds like you were well-supported and a really good kickoff uh, weekend. And finally, PokerCoaching.com, which is the training site for Jonathan Little. So thank you to Jonathan for supporting what we're doing as well. And I also want to thank those of you who have sent in some topic ideas. I've already started to get some audio responses from those that we're expecting to get regular content from going forward, uh, including Jonathan Little, Fox Wallace, Mike Schneider, Kuvang, Aaron Johnson, Vlad Revniaga, and more folks like that. So it's going to be a, a good time. I think you're really going to enjoy the new format once we get past the, the book discussion as well. Uh, quick shout out, All In For Africa, October 28th, 10 o'clock. It's not at 1030. It's going to be at 10 o'clock, their regular Saturday morning tournament time at Running Aces. Uh, the final table is going to be broadcast by Next Level Poker, so that's super exciting. And one one change or one thing that we're still thinking about is I mentioned last time we have this amazing Hawaiian vacation that's been donated. We're still trying to figure out how to incorporate that. So that may be part of the All-In for Africa tournament, but we are looking at potentially moving it to a separate tournament altogether, maybe doing some kind of a winner-take-all um, $100 buy-in or something like that for that trip. So we're really looking at how do we maximize the impact from that donation. We're still playing with that, but even if that's not part of it, uh, what we always have is 45 to 50 regular bounties scheduled, a ton of, of money that's available uh, in bounties. Uh, it usually ends up being an overlay when you look at the buy-in, and then you look at uh, we, we take a percentage for charity, and the rest uh, goes out in the cash prize pool, and then we add the bounties on. It ends up being an overlay almost every time. So I would love to have you come out October 28th, 10 o'clock, support what we're doing there. The flyer is almost done. Uh, we're trying to uh, finalize what we're going to do with that big prize before we put the flyer out there. Uh, but it's looking pretty good. Um, so uh, I'd love to have you all out there. Uh, as far as the uh, as far as far the episode today, we'll do a quick commercial thanking our, our sponsor. We'll hear some audio submitted by Jonathan Little. And then we'll continue the conversation. Uh, we got a few different people involved in this conversation because we couldn't complete the conversation in one sitting. So you're going to hear uh, from, from a few folks, including John Somsky and Andy Kaplan, who both just finaled the, the uh, Sunday event of the first weekend of the Poker is Fun Tour. So that's kind of exciting and good timing for that. So with that, uh, let's continue on with the show. Feel free to reach out with any suggestions, and we will chat with you later. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota, featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. Hello, everyone. This is Jonathan Little. I'm here with another part of this book club, 
for the Rec Poker Podcast. I hope you're enjoying going through Secrets of Professional Tournament Poker. Today we're going to talk about miscellaneous topics when you are playing very deep stacked. So when you are playing deep stacked, I think there's a lot of value, especially when you're learning the game, in keeping your decisions simple. This is a topic that comes up a lot when you're talking to high-stakes players. They're always trying to figure out, should they make the play that makes the most money or the play that leads them to make the fewest mistakes? And this often comes up, for example, on the river when you're trying to determine if you should make a somewhat thin value bet or if you have, if you can just easily check call with a hand like top pair, middle kicker. And when you're trying to eke out the tiniest of edges in tournaments or in cash games, often you want to make the difficult play. But... If you are not a world-class player or prone to errors, maybe you do want to lead or make the play that leads to simple decisions, which may often be checking with hands like top pair marginal kicker on the river with the intention of just easily check calling. Uh, There there are a few other situations where this manifests itself, but uh, you can read about those in the book. You also want to know what you are inducing if you do make a specific play. So imagine on the river you decide to bet small. Let's say the pot's 20 big blinds and you decide to bet three big blinds with top pair. You should have a very clear idea of what you're going to do if your opponent raises. Versus some players, they are never going to raise unless they have a good hand. So if they raise, you can easily fold. Other players will see that small three big blind bet and think, you must be weak because why else would you make this tiny bet? And they will raise virtually every time. And against those players, you have an incredibly easy call. So you always want to be aware of what you are inducing. And if you're not aware of what you're inducing because you think your opponent plays well, well, you should not make a play that may induce your opponent to necessarily do one thing or the other. Something that plagues a lot of players, especially in the you know, $500 to $1,000 buy-in range, is fancy play syndrome. They see players on TV making extravagant plays, which really happens you know, one every 500 hands or something, and they think that that's just normal poker. And that leads to these players playing absolutely crazy. Either... Not necessarily crazy, but not optimally at all. They'll do stuff like slow play a strong hand into the ground, thinking that they're trapping their opponents, or they'll run these elaborate bluffs, and you know they fail a decent amount of the time because bluffs do inherently fail sometimes. And I strongly suggest you just play a good, fundamentally sound strategy with the capability of getting out of line sometimes. Do not think that you must be making fancy plays every time, or don't think that you have to try to win every single pot you enter. It is okay to lose pots in poker. That is part of the game. And if you try to get too fancy, you're just going to burn money. And this is why a lot of the players in the mid-stakes games never make it to the high-stakes games. They are much too concerned with stroking their egos and trying to show the world how good they are than they're actually concerned with making money in the long run. When you are value betting, you also want to make, or you usually want to make a point of giving the illusion of fold equity. So say you do have the nuts and you bet the flop and the turn, and you're on the river, and you're against someone who's generally aggressive, and you decide you want to bet, you want to make sure you bet an amount that allows your opponent room to raise. And this also applies on the flop and on the turn. Um, I guess let's talk about a flop situation. Say you have a 15 big blind stack. You make a min raise. Someone calls. Flop comes. Whatever. You have a really good hand that you're not planning to fold. The pot's going to be about five big blinds in this spot with about um, 13 big blinds left. If you bet something like nine big blinds on the flop, just some huge bet, well, your opponent knows you're never folding, right? So if your opponent knows you're never folding, that's a problem, especially when you're trying to extract value because your opponent's never going to bluff you. Instead, if you bet 1.5 big blinds, some small bet, 
versus an aggressive player, you first off may know what you're inducing. You're either inducing them to call or raise, both of which you're fine with because you have a really good hand. And also you give them plenty of room to make a bluff. So always make sure you give your opponent plenty of room to make mistakes. We mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you always want to make a point to play a little bit more straightforwardly in multi-way pots, but you also want to make sure you play somewhat straightforwardly in large pots. And that's typically because large pots are typically played with strong hands, unless your opponent's crazy again. But um, if you're playing a large pot and you don't have a very good hand, that could be an issue. You either messed up somewhere earlier in the hand that led to this large pot, or you are just against a strong range. And if you're against a strong range, you probably want to figure out a way to get out of the pot if you don't have a very good hand. Something that comes up in small stakes a lot that doesn't really come up in high stakes tournaments very often is when you are raised or re-raised for the minimum. So say on the flop, you bet three big blinds and your opponent makes it six. This is a tough spot where usually you are trying to take advantage of whatever you think about your opponent's tendencies. So some player, some players will always check min-raise when they have top pair, top kicker, or better. Against those players, you often have a very easy decision because you realize the pot odds you're getting. Often you need to win about 20% of the time based on the pot odds. If your hand will win 20% of the time or more, you should call, and if you won't, you should fold. Pretty easy. It gets more difficult when your opponent's range gets wider when they're check-raising with stuff like draws and also top pair, top kicker, because now if you have a hand like middle pair, you can't really justify folding, and you're in a pretty tough spot. But... When you do get raised the minimum, always understand that you are trying to exploit each specific opponent. Some players will make these re-raises only with good hands. Some people do it with a much wider range, and you have to act accordingly. And we also discussed in this section how to play when there's a maniac on your left. And this is a scenario that's very, very difficult for a lot of amateurs because they do not properly adjust. You have to understand that when there's a player on your left who is incredibly aggressive, that player is going to raise and re-raise when you put money in the pot. So what do you do? You First off, let that player know that you are capable of playing only or more than only the nuts, right? You don't want that opponent to just think that you're only playing premium hands. And then you tighten up a little bit. So you can play a somewhat normal strategy at the beginning of the day. This player will probably raise and re-raise you a little bit and you'll end up folding some. But then you just tighten up a little bit. I'm not going to say tighten up a ton, but tighten up a little bit and play in a manner that gives your opponent plenty of room to make bluffs. You want to do a lot of checking and a lot of calling versus maniacs because they are going to view your checks as weakness. Whereas in reality, if you're just checking all of your hands, that does not indicate strength or weakness. And if you um, tailor your ranges appropriately, you will have enough value hands in your range to just very easily check call down. And when you do have a hand like middle pair versus a maniac, if you think they are trying to bluff you, just uh, you know, sit back and wait for these middle pairs and better and check, call, check, call, check, call. And you're going to end up winning the pot something like 60% of the time. Now that implies you're going to lose 40% of the time, but that's okay because if you're investing decent amounts of money with 60% equity on average, you are going to crush your opponents in the long run. And finally, this section, we discuss how to be the table bully. And this comes up occasionally in games where everyone's just incredibly passive, but I'm not really finding these, that these tables exist so much anymore, at least in the high-stakes games. Most of the time now, players understand that they just can't let you run them over. So if you do find yourself at a table where your opponents are just playing very tightly, very straightforwardly, and just not doing anything out of line at all, you really should open up your game quite a bit. But at the same time, realize that if these players 
are playing back at you, they're probably not fed up at you if they are just weak type passive players. They just have a good hand. And when someone has a good hand, you have to be disciplined and get out of the way. So that's going to be it for today. I want to thank all of you for being here on the Rec Poker Podcast. Hope you enjoyed going through this part of the book. And I will talk to you next time. Well, for me, the um, one of the lines from Chapter 9 was, make your decisions simple. And I think it's a theme throughout his book. It's about putting pressure on your opponents so they fold and to give you information about what they're going to do in the hand or making your bet sizing such that you have an easy decision if someone pushes over the top of you, either an easy push call or an easy fold. Um, And I think that's something I don't necessarily think a couple steps ahead in order to make my decisions simple. And I often give myself harder decisions than are necessary. Yeah, and one of the questions I had on that is, you know, by by thinking ahead, you know what you're going to do, so your decisions are simple in that way, but the decisions are still decisions you have to make. It just seems like you're changing the timing of them, either making them earlier or later. Well, I think it's also thinking about taking in the consequences of your actions. Often, you know, I have a standard bet size, and you realize all of the sudden that bet size if someone pushes over the top of you, makes the the odds that you're getting for the call a really difficult line to decide on. Are you going to be making, because uh, depending upon where you put their range, you're kind of exact exactly on the decision line. Whereas if you bet a little smaller, maybe you can easily fold. Or if you bet a little bigger, then you're definitely getting the right price to call. So, you know, it, it's those types of things thinking ahead to not put yourself into difficult situations. I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah, so it's either, you know, I, I'm, I know I'm going to bet here and thinking ahead what the consequences are, so what's my bet size so that I can either fold or I want to commit myself so I get it all in. And I suppose the same thing is true thinking through how many big blinds you have and what if I'm going to fire all three streets versus kind of pot control, or at least, you know, putting yourself in a situation where you're not making a decision for your entire tournament. Right. Or, you know, it might be as simple as deciding to check a river back rather than trying to get some value because it'd be really ugly if they pushed over the top of you. Right. You know, that that's making your decision simple. Okay. That's good. Is, Is it something that you... So when you when you read that, was it something that just resonated with you? Like that's something that you you pay attention to that other recs should, or it's something that you're you're thinking, it's boy, I need to improve on this. It's something I know I should pay attention to, but I don't. I put myself into difficult situations, and, and partially, you know, I've always thought that well, a good poker player should be able to. Um, handle and make the right decision when in difficult situations. But I think an even better poker player makes it such that they don't have to make difficult decisions as often as possible. I think that's good, man. I think that's really good because it does appear to me that, you know, when I play with some really, really top players, it just seems like they're, they're never frazzled. And of course, part of that is their experience, but part of that is it does seem like they're never really put to the test. Right. They're, I mean, that's part of the, you know, uh, you see the really good aggressive players. They're constantly min-betting. 
And it seems like whenever you get a hand, they're all always getting away from it. Well, that's because they've done they've done the calculations and they know they can bet and get away from it. And it's an easy decision for them to fold. So, you know, it, it's it's something that a lot of really good players have a good handle on. That's good. How about you other guys? You have is that something that resonates with you, or do you have other examples of maybe how we make the game more simple? Well, I think I, one, I guess, of, the th- one of the things I've noticed, yeah, okay. One of the things I've noticed throughout the whole book, and I've just it kind of was like a revelation today as I was uh, prepping for this and reading a little bit more. It's always about knowing your opponent. Because he gives you all of these different things that you can do, these different plays that you can make, these different ways you can be. But then he always kind of tells you that, well, it's based on your opponent. So you really need to understand your opponents to be able to make your decisions easy. I think in in that chapter even he talks about if your opponent's to the right are raising constantly, you play tighter. If your opponents to the left are constantly folding their blinds, you play looser. You know, it's always based on the opponent. So the main takeaway I got was, hey, I better pay more attention to what my opponents are doing. Yeah, and I, I could chime in too. I mean, I think, uh, I believe the first person was John. I think I think you summarized that really well. And I, I think it's in a later chapter, but he talks about the, uh, the Swedish friend somewhere in there that says like he always bets a high enough amount where if the other guy goes all in now I have to call. So I just make, I've made my decision by making my bet already. And so depending what the guy does, I just call or, or not. Like I, I think it's interesting to be, and I think he didn't, it didn't sound like he immediately agreed with that logic, but, but it's an interesting kind of way to go about it where it, you are putting the decision on other people and depending on what they do, yours is already made for you. And I think that's a, a bit about John. I think what you were sort of describing that, uh, that it, it, inside of, you know, knowing your person well, which is, a, a, or the, the opponent well, is obviously extremely important to be able to get this right. And everyone's going to make mistakes with this, but um, just being, making your moves, whether it's a smaller bet or a larger bet, so it's easy for you to decide if I should get away or now I have to call by the bottom. Your decisions on earlier streets are compounded and everyone knows this in poker so much more greatly by the time you get to the river. And so, thinking about that so many streets earlier and the action that you're taking and knowing that it's going to compound itself later. I, I think it's just one of the, a, a larger takeaway from, from this book and from Jonathan in general and a lot of the other things that he, he writes. It, it's a, it's the mindset that I think a professional poker player has developed. It is kind of second nature to them at that point. And I think he's trying to impart that through this book. So I, I completely agree with the, the, everything that, that you uh, laid out. So John. This is Andy. The one thing I would say, too, is, you know, when he talks about making your decisions simple, um, early on in that chapter, he talks about, um, you know, a 40, 40 big blind stack and you raise and your opponent re-raises. Um, this is after the flop and you flopped a flush draw. Right. So you have ace king of clubs and two clubs come on the flush. He's talking about, you know, three betting all in there. And at first when I read that, I was like, if someone's, you know, someone's raising you. They're showing strength. But. That, that that type of a decision, it makes sense when you think about it, because now you're putting a lot of pressure on your opponent, and it's really a simple decision for you. You're like, okay, I've got the flush draw. I'm going to put pressure on your opponent. And it just seems like making a simple decision like that 
long-term is good because now you're putting all the pressure on your opponent as opposed to trying to play with what is in essence a draw for two more streets. It just, that, that simple decision seems like it, it does make sense when you think about, well, now I'm putting all the pressure on my opponent. Well, and to back you up on that, I think too, when he's, if he's playing that ace king suited in that spot or whatever and flops the plus draw, like he knows going into that hand, I'm calling this to to literally. I mean, obviously everyone wants to flop the nuts there, but but he's going into it with like, if I can flop a four flush here, I'm getting I'm stacking right now. Like I've already made that decision again where it's easy. I've got two overs of the board, likely two overs or whatever my opponent has, and mm-hmm. you know nine extra outs for the flush. Like I'm. I'm getting it in fist pump, get it in. And that's like, for, I think I agree with you where like sometimes someone will all raise and they jam and like, ah, oh, should I go with this? I got eight high, you know, where it's, I believe, you know, what he's trying to teach people is like, you should be like, yes, that's exactly what I wanted to happen. I, I'll take my 45 plus percent draw or percent equity there. So. No, I think that's good. I think, I think, yeah. Cause I mean, fold equity, we all know is, is a huge thing too, but yeah, what's the mental energy <laughs> that's expended, you know, in those situations and over the course of a, especially, you know, a multi-day tournament, how much of those sort of things add up where you're the one that's always making the tough decision and part of that is maybe avoidable. Things like uh, stuff that you guys already mentioned, you know, the bet sizing and making those decisions on flush draws. But I think even even the things that are even more basic, like when I if I open with a raise pre-flop and then somebody re-raises me, you know, you, I mean, I'll do, I'll do this, and you know, other people too. You kind of go into this agony, sort of, sort of painful. You know, I've got pocket sixes, and I opened, and somebody in position re-raised me, and what do I do? You know, and that sort of thing. You know, so those things I think really add up the emotional drain versus sort of knowing when I open with sixes, I'm either going to fold, call, or re-raise to a to a three bet, depending, like Rob said, on my, on the player that I'm up against. And so I still have a decision to make, but I've kind of already pre-made that decision when I opened with sixes or I opened with aces or ace-queen or whatever the situation might be. I, I think that's totally fair. And it, it, Steve, I think the, the part that sometimes if you're going to bring it back to more rec player instead of like a Jonathan Little is, uh, I mean, maybe like Taylor, who was playing online a lot from, from our group from previous episodes, you know, maybe that he's getting to get in 10, 15, some volume, you know, every single day and stuff playing online, but for most of us, I'm, I'm at least speaking for myself, I think, you know, to get up and get to play, I've got to take, you know, a half day off from work and work out things with the family, things like that. And that, like, comes to mind when you're there at the game playing and all of a sudden that ace-king suited four flush. I know, I know that I should fist bump, get that in. But then another part of me is like, it's taken me a lot of work to get up here and play, and I, I've got chips. Like, I, I'd be okay if I laid this down. I'll be just fine. But I, I think it's an important part to sort of think of what Jonathan's trying to tell you is whether you play once a month or you play every single day for larger stakes. Like, that's what you're kind of trying to be where that those types of moves are automatic. And I think that, you know, I think that's kind of part of what he's trying to impart to even, I know the book's, that, you know, sort of geared towards professional poker players, but I think we can all learn a lot from that. That's like, again, that, that is a let's just get it in and see what happens. And if if you don't win, that stinks. But and it stinks for some of us a little bit more in that scenario. But it's still the right play. So I think it's a really good point. I think it comes back, and we're getting you know off the question with, with I'm taking us to a different road. But like I think it comes back to in a sense the vision or 
the purpose for why each of us play. And like you said, if you're playing every single day, you can make those decisions, you can take those chances, and you know there's a tournament tomorrow. And you're really trying to maximize your ROI, and you know it's the right decision because in the long run that's going to get you, you know, further ahead. But if you're playing poker recreational because I just I just enjoy the game, I want to spend a few hours at the casino, meet a few people, have a few laughs, have a few beers, whatever it is, it does change how you play. You know, especially if, you, like you said, you know you're only going to be back there, you know, in 30 days. Well, I don't want to bust out, you know, the, the first hand after the rebuy period. I want to play for a while. And so it, it does come into play, and it's, you know, it's exploitable by the better players, but it does come back to the reason why you're there. And I think we make decisions based on that. And, you know, for some people, it's, um, I just want to cash. That's sort of my goal. And so they play like they're going to cash. Some people, I'm just going to have fun. So they play like they're going to have fun. Some people are, I don't care how crazy I am. I just want to put a bad beat on somebody. And so they play like that. And so I think that's an interesting dynamic. And maybe, I don't know, maybe some of you guys talk about this. Like when you talk about knowing your opponent, maybe that's something to consider is what do we think that the purpose of that person playing is or why are, you know, why are they playing? And maybe that's a good insight to have on people. That's a great point, Steve. What's their intention? Because your, yours might be, like you said, I, I want to play for a long time today. I don't get to play that often. Well, that's probably not a mindset of a person that's trying to win. That I mean, you might win, but you also very likely might min-cash with that sort of that mindset. If, Like you said, if you're just trying to lay a, a bad beat on someone, you're probably going to chase chase some weird draws and be ready to rebuy. But I, I think to your point, you know, the, the people that play every single day, they're they're strictly making the most positive plus EV kind of choice all the way, and and it, it's it's tough to play that way again if you're if you are just a rec. I shouldn't say just <laughs> if you are a rec player, you know it, it can be difficult to think that way. But but it, inverse flipping that to your opponents and thinking about and trying to sort of put them on you know from their image and all the all the things you're taking and what's their intention today? Are they here to win the tournament or are they here to have some fun or whatnot? I think it's a really great point, Stephen. Something really interesting to kind of consider while you're sitting there at the table beyond just, ah, I think he's loose or he's there, you know, figuring out like, what is their intention here today. It probably leads to some pretty interesting insights on some of their large, you know, bigger moves and why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, I, I think this everyone is- uh, looks at trying to get the best value out of their tournament. And if we're talking about from a uh, money point of view, that would map directly to ROI. But some people look at it like, well, how much am I paying an hour to play? If I can get three hours of play out of this $50 tournament, that's a good investment for me. doesn't matter whether they cash or not. They just want to get their three hours in, which means they aren't necessarily willing to take the risks that are necessary in order for them to win the tournament. Other people have different motivations. I was in the Omaha tournament I played recently. One of the guys needed one more final table to get to the uh, running aces player of the week or player of the month or, or something like that. So in that spot, I knew that I'd be able to put pressure on him if the situation ever came up because he wouldn't want to go out before the final table came together. So, you know, you do have to know what your opponent's motivations are and try to figure that out. Some people want to make the final table, like you said. Some people want to cash, whatever that might be. 
this is Andy. I, I was just going to say, I, you know, I agree with that. And, and I think it's interesting because you have that, sometimes you have that attitude of, you know, am I just trying to get to the final table or just to cash? But specifically to, to Little and his book, I mean, in the beginning of his book, if I remember correctly, he's talking about, hey, this book is not about, you know, he criticizes those people that make it to the final table and don't have a big stack. And I think his idea is, you know, I want you to get to the final table with a big stack and to win the tournament. So I totally, I get that. And I agree with the fact of like, sometimes you're like, hey, I just want to play for a couple hours. But specifically for Little, he's he's talking, and I think his, the, some of the things he's talking about, especially the aggressive things he's talking about, he's talking about, hey, you're going to, you're playing to win, or you're going to maybe bust out early. Right. And, I, and I've talked about this on the previous podcast, too. That was one of my trans, transformations and maybe gone too far. But I used to be much more concerned about trying to get in the money, you know, and calling that a win. And what I found out was, you know, I got in the money, you know, a really high percentage of the time. But my my multiple when I when I did cash, like my multiple of what I got back relative to what I paid in was like less than three. You know what I mean? So like it was a fifty dollar tournament my average cash was less than $150. Well, even if I cash 25% of the time, I'm a losing player. And so I made, you know, made an intentional effort to increase that multiple. So now my, my cashing percentage has gone down, but my multiple is now like nine. So I don't cash nearly as much, but when I do cash, it's more of those top three spots. And I do think that's what Jonathan's referring to is, you know, all the money's in the top three spots and it means you're going to bust tournaments early. It means you're going to look like a fool, you know, playing more aggressively in some of those, some of those spots. But I, I think it's exactly what his point is. But there again, that's the goal there is to maximize ROI. And, you know, Jonathan, and, you know, I have the luxury of playing more than most recreational players too. And if I knew I wasn't going to be able to play in the next few days, I'd look at some of those decisions and say, well, that sucks. It's going to be another month before I get to play. And I only played for 45 minutes. I think, no, Steve, what you're saying is, I mean, it kind of sums to sum that up a little. If I could, it's I think you you have to embrace variance in that spot. And I like I couldn't my like natural self is like anti that as hardcore as you could be. Like I'm trying to find all these spots that are like the least variance possible. But I think for a guy like Jonathan Little or even just someone that plays as frequently as he does, even if you're not playing fifteen hundred, thirty five hundred, you know, the level of events he's playing. I think at that, when you're playing with that sort of level of frequency, you have to embrace frequency and you have to just take those those spots and, and take your wounds and come back, you know? But that's hard. It is. It is I really think it's really, really hard when you don't get to get out much. It becomes so much easier to go, ah, I'll, just, I'll just fold right now. I, you know, I'm probably ahead or, you know, I've got a great draw here, but... If, if I don't hit, I'm gone. I don't really want to drive home now, you know. And that's a, to your point, Steve, that's a really, I think that's an interesting kind of thing to think about when you're ranging an opponent. Like, it, put that into the mix, not just, like, your physical kind of initial read of them. Are they old? Are they young? Are they this? So that, you know, all the kind of things that people sort of do as a very first gut reaction. But watch them play a little bit and, I, I don't know that I've spent a lot of time kind of thinking that way. What is their intention today? That's a, I think it's a great question to ask yourself. Well, and, then, and they'll tell you. I mean, I know I probably do too, but if you just kind of start chatting with them, they'll basically tell you what they're trying to do. You know, if, 
if you know somebody who plays quite a bit, you can just ask them, hey, how are you doing in the points race? To John's point, they'll tell you, oh, you know, I need one more final table, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Or, oh, yeah, I haven't been able to get out for the last few months or, you know, whatever it might be. Or I'm here for the whole weekend. And, yeah, I think eventually they'll kind of tell you. And, yeah, it is, it is interesting because I always think about, you know, kind of to Rob's point, knowing your opponent, so you say, okay, what is their player type? And that's important. But, yeah, this this kind of motivation behind behind that is is an interesting insight yeah so um i can't remember what my oh so my point was that just when you're playing just to cat you know to go the next step i think that he would argue that that's not the right way to play you've got to be have the mindset of you know you got to play to win that was kind of my point that i was going to make yeah i think that's true and i think that's that's a hard it's a hard pill to swallow sometimes when i think when i think it's it's I think a lot of times we have kind of the scratch-off lottery ticket mentality where, you know, anytime we get money back, we feel like we're a winner. And so we might go into the store with $10 and come out with three, but we feel like we're a winner because we scratched four winners in the in the process of doing that. And I think at the end of the day, if you... No, no, I was just going to say quickly that, you know, I think that, to me, that's the beauty of tracking your results. And I know there's a lot of recreational players out there that are probably rolling their eyes at that. And I know I'm more of an analytical person, but... I think there's so much power in in tracking your results and then, you know, if you're able to do a little analysis on it, that's great. Otherwise, find somebody that can. But I think th- there just has to be a lot of players out there that think they're winning players because they say, you know, boy, I'm, I'm cashing 15% of the time, which is well above average. Uh, but I think if they look at their ROI and all of the min caches that are involved, they might be a losing player. And that doesn't mean that they shouldn't play because, you know, they're having a lot of fun doing it. But it maybe would would open up their eyes to see where they maybe are are missing some value by playing more conservative in some of those some of those spots where they maybe should err on the side of aggression. Yeah, and 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 I don't. I mean, I'm I'm certainly one that you know when I play, I you know many times I'm like, okay, I just want to reach the final table, or you know, you want to you know, I get it as a rec player. You you just sometimes want to just enjoy yourself and have fun. But I think if you're when you're reading, you know, specifically this book, Jonathan Little, he's like, he, I think his theory is you got to play to win and you got to make those aggressive plays that are going to get you the chips to win the tournament and take that, you know, slightly higher variance route as opposed to just, you know, limping your way to the final table. I'd love to hear from Rob. I know, you know, my take on you, Rob, we've had a chance to play together a bit for the last couple of years is that you're a guy who, who doesn't shy away from the big spots that you, you know, you go for the win. And I'm curious if, if my perception is right. And, and is that something that you had to work on or has that always been part of your personality? No, I think that's something I had to work on. Um, I had to, it, I, well, see, at the beginning, when I first started playing live poker, I would be really pissed off when somebody called my all in with a hand that was worse than mine, and then suck out on me. So it was like, I'd be mad. And I'm going, well, then after a while, I realized, well, what what did you want him to do, right? You wanted him to call you with that hand. So I started taking the fact that there could be a bad beat in my future. I took that for granted, and I took it with a grain of salt. I mean, it's going to happen. It's, it's bound to happen. So you can't be afraid of it. And I think that's... I think that's what you mean about me is I'm not afraid to get my money in good, even though it's my tournament life. So I'm, I'm willing to do that. And, 
and most of the time, I can I can honestly say most of the time when I go out of a tournament, whether it's a uh, one of these uh, leagues that I'm in or running aces or down at Canterbury, I usually go out with the best hands going in. <laughs> so, and so it's, it's, uh, but it, I, I agree with what Derek and Andy were saying that it, it does get tough because I don't get out as much to play poker as I'd like. Um, and so, you know, you get into a spot early on, say you're there for an hour. You, I, I remember going down to Canterbury and playing the Wednesday 235, and I, I busted out in the second level. And it was like, <laughs> you know, I drove well, I drove an hour down to Canterbury, played for a half an hour, and went home. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. But well, what do you do? Well, and there, you know, and you know, there's short-term variance and there's long-term variance, and you hope that eventually you, you develop the skill edge to give you a positive ROI. But, uh, you know, I mean, I've had a nice run lately where I've had some positive variance and some good things happen, but right before that, I went 18 consecutive tournaments without cashing. And right. and I think about, you know, the the frequency with which I get to play means that, you know, it was whatever 4 to 6 weeks or so. You know, and I count every rebuy as an as a entry and all that stuff too, but you know, so I went, you know, 4 to 6 weeks or whatever the whatever it was without cashing and that was really hard for me, but it was only 4 to 6 weeks. If you're playing twice right. a month and you go 18 straight, that's 9 months. And right. so I think that has to change your perspective on saying, I just want to cash. You know, I think that's a huge point that you guys made. Well, I, I agree with that uh, assessment. One of the things I've noticed for me is when I play online, I uh, my ROI is better than when I play live. And part of that is because playing an online tournament is nothing special. I can play, I can get up, I can, if I bust out, I don't have to drive home, I can sign up for another one, I might be playing two or three at the same time. So busting out is no big deal. So there I am very comfortable taking, a, using an aggressive stance when I think it's the appropriate thing to do, and I don't worry about busting out, and my ROI shows that I win a lot more, and my uh, return is better. In live tournaments, I have to remind myself to do the right thing. You know, if I just make it to the final table, getting if I'm playing a $100 tournament and I get my $100 back, that is not going to make a big difference in my life. It's not going to make a big difference in my bankroll. But if I get $1,200 back, now all of a sudden we're talking about something. So I'm much better off trying to play more aggressively. The, the trick is, of course, then learning when to do it and when not to do it so you don't just bust out willy-nilly. And without getting too far off the rails, like psychologically speaking, I think it's uh, what we're describing, I think, a little bit is this, uh, this sense, like you said, when you're playing online, John, like you, uh, you bust out, you click the X button, you're out. But live, you're like, there is that sense of like I gotta stand up and walk out of the room now. Like I'm the guy that made that dumb dumb play or something. And yep. I, I the don't the walk know of shame. <laughs> Thank you, the walk of shame. Like there's maybe a little bit, you know, of that in play too, which I I, I would assume for some people can kind of come up some, but it, there is a little bit of that like like between driving there and like all the effort that it takes sometimes. Again, when you're not doing that on like a five six days a week basis that kind of comes into play too as much as all of us probably wouldn't want to admit it like that happens we all know that but when it happens when it, when you're in the moment 
your face gets a little red. You're just not. <laughs> well, that that also it's goes a, into play. That also goes into play with, you know, making the right play. Sometimes in a vacuum, the right play looks really stupid if it doesn't work out. But over time, it still may have been the right play. So having the confidence to do that is a huge deal. Now, it takes a lot of experience, maybe more than I have to do that. But, you know, you need to be able to make that aggressive play, even if it's you'll look stupid if you get called or if it doesn't happen to work out this time over the course of that situation thousands of times, if it's the right play, it's the right play. Well, it's the same. I think that just goes back to you just have to embrace variance. It's just, I hate, I don't want to, I hate it. I hate you, variance. <laughs> you know, but I think you have to embrace it because that's like, um, I think someone said earlier, like they get so pissed at someone that would call them off with a, just a terrible hand and suck out them. It's like, but that's what you wanted. That's what you want that to happen over and over again. Cause you're going to win when that happens in the long run. But that time, those times when it doesn't, you're like driving home. You're like, guy in the blue hat. I hate you. <laughs> well, I mean, if, if there were no variants, this game would be chess. And how many casinos do you know that have grown up around people playing chess Zero. against each other? No, that's right. I think that's the, that's the big transition that I think, a lot of rec players have to make, and I'm still working on making it, is that transition from being results-oriented to decision-making-oriented. And I think a lot of us struggle with that because it's exactly your point. We go home beating ourselves up for getting queens in against jacks and losing. I'm like, well, that's crazy. But, you know, if, if it holds up, you're you know, you're going to rake in a nice pot. And I think that, that's kind of what we do, right? We, we shove a big flush draw. And if it gets there, we just think, well, it should get there. And we just kind of move on with our day and, you know, build, stack our chips. If it doesn't get there, we second guess it. And so I guess the question is, like what John's saying, is it the right decision? I mean, I just that's how I just busted the last tournament. Massive pot. I had squadoosh. I had nothing. But the board became really scary. And I decided to shove, you know, what, what I had left. And, of course, I got snap called by, like, the, the nut flush. And I was out, you know, and... People are looking at me like, oh, what an idiot. And it maybe was an idiotic play. I don't know. But I would probably do the same thing in that spot with my same stack with that that size of pot, you know, in the middle. And I bet I'm going to win that pot 60% of the time or more. You know, but you you look at it and you say, well, geez, I'm such an idiot player. But if that works, you feel like a genius. So which is it? Is it just the result that determined if you're a genius or an idiot or is it the decision? Well, I think it's the decision, definitely. Um, as long as you went through the process in your mind of what the connotations of that move was, and what you know, what you put your opponent on, and what type of opponent he was, could he fold in that spot with this, that, or the other thing? So all of those things come into play. So I'm with you, Steve. I think it's more of a process thing than a results thing. I think there's many times where I busted out of a tournament, and I'm going home, and I'm going over in my head how I played this hand or that hand. And there might be one or two hands that I kind of question what I did, but for the most part, I can look back and say that, yeah, I made good decisions most of the time. And uh, I, when I went out, the hand I went out on, I made a good decision. And so the process was there. It just didn't get the results. For me, very few of my regrets when I look back on a tournament were because of a play I made. It was because of a play that I really felt was the right play, but didn't have the guts to follow through on. That you didn't. That you didn't make, right? 
Yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah, exactly. Know. There were uh, in a tournament I was just playing the other day. There was a spot where I knew there was one particular person who was really telegraphing their hand with their bets. They'd come in if they liked their hand, they'd bet anywhere from four to six x to open the pot. And if they didn't, they'd limp. And it was late in the tournament. They had overwhelmingly huge chip stack. But I kept thinking it got to me and I was going like, you know, I should just raise all in. I know they'll fold. And then, you know, two positions later, I I wimp out. Someone else does the exact same thing and takes down the pot. Now, it could be that that other person had uh, a hand that would have called my all in. But I still think it was the right play for that situation. But I didn't do it. Yeah. I love I love that. That's a great soundbite for the for the podcast too. I love well, how you said that. It, it, it well, it's tough too. I mean, John, I totally know what you're saying because you feel like you recognize the spot, but the, you know, it kind of comes back to all this kind of stuff, wreck or whatnot. And I actually wrote down a what I thought was a really interesting quote that I want to look up because it's kind of summarizes to me if you guys don't mind. But I kind of took this quote from an author about someone that does kind of mental coaching and things. But I feel like it kind of summarizes what we're describing as you know we're we're not professional players yet, <laughs> but um, but I think it's kind of what you're just describing, John. And if I could read this quote to you guys, you see what see what you think. I I was going to see what you guys thought of this, but. It's from a guy named Dennis Waitley, if I'm properly pronouncing his name, but it said, it's not what you are that holds you back. It's what you think you are not. And I thought that was, uh, it wasn't definitely wasn't written from a poker perspective, but kind of what you were just describing, John, it's like you, you see these spots, you, you know, you should fire on it, but it's the thing that's holding you back. Isn't, isn't firing and being like, darn, I was wrong. The guy snapped me off and has a nut. It's those, those moments that we all kind of recognize. It's not those ones where we go, I really took, I was ambitious and I took a shot and I was wrong. Usually when I drive home and I'm like, I'm not mad at myself. Like I took a shot. It's like you said, it's the ones where you like, you have those two spots. You remember that one, the one in your mind where you're like, I should have fired there, but I did it. It's kind of the, what you didn't fire. And it's what you aren't that kind of like holds you back. So, and I think, you know, getting back to the book a bit, and how, how aggressive uh, Jonathan is and what he's sort of describing is sort of taking a bit of, away from what you are or what you aren't and just saying, here is a very, like, set sort of procedure or process and if you follow this and just do it, just not to say you're like a robot, but just go out and autoplay these kind of things and take out your emotion and I want to last three hours today because I haven't got to play in a long time, all that kind of stuff. I think that kind of what he's describing really will lead to being a winning you know, a winning profitable player over time. But I totally a million percent understand why that can be difficult. Yeah, I love that quote. That's fantastic. It reminds me there's a Mandela quote that's kinda of like that. Kind of like that as well as well. We're more afraid of what we could be versus uh what we are now. Well let me let me switch gears a little bit. There Chris Gordon had put a question out out here about uh Jonathan Little had said something like tricking my opponents into bluffing at me might be the most profitable thing that I do at the poker table. And Chris had asked asked the group, "Do we do this? And if so, how do we do this?" I've been trying to do it more, um, and how I do it is you you underrepresent your hand. If you, uh, I originally when I started playing, I would play aggressive 
and always follow through with that aggression. So, you know, I have a flop. I might bet for three streets uh, with ace-king and nothing hits, just hoping people will fold. And because if you don't fold, you're going to look weak, and then they're going to take the pot away from you. But then you have to remember, this game is not about winning pots. It's about winning chips. And part of winning chips is not losing them. So uh, I've then toned down my aggression and realized one of the easiest ways to do it, particularly if you're against an aggressive player, is maybe do your continuation bet, check the turn, and then call any river. Because that gives them a chance to try to win the pot, take it away from you. I mean, you have to decide when you're going to do this, and it depends upon how wet the board is on whether or not you want to give a free card on the turn. But that's a good way to let them bluff into you. Yeah, I totally agree. To me, that's that's the absolute number one way that I'm aware of. Uh, it's it's pot control, but it is what something what you said a few weeks ago too, John, about checking for value. It's kind of that same thing. You're not checking because you're scared. You're actually checking because you think this is how you can actually maximize the amount of chips you're going to win in the pot. Because if you see bet, you know, if you continuation bet, then you bet the turn again. He's only going to continue with you know a big draw or a decent sized hand, and you're going to get folds from all of those inferior hands. So why not check, take a little bit of risk that you get outdrawn, and then you're probably going to get some value on the river. Yep. Well, and another way to accomplish it too can be as simple as just being in position against an aggressive player who has the lead in the hand, and then just let them keep the lead. Then they'll do what I used to do fire three barrels at it and you can win the pot yeah yeah or that, even I, top john, I, I agree with you john and steve like that was my number one note from chapter nine is keeping hyper aware of what you're inducing so like i think jonathan if i quoted this right on the sheet it was you know by showing weakness or or when you have a good but not great holding checking back the turn and with the intention of calling down like river bets or giving the illusion of having fold equity. I mean, I think he rolls through a bunch of scenarios that I think previously before reading this, I really thought like I have to keep the hammer down and it just, it really makes sense how you actually make a lot more value or you, you can gain a lot more chips, I guess, and get a lot more value out of your hands. I be as aggressive as Jonathan describes being, it's funny because in the long run, he, what I got the most out of this book and in particular this chapter kind of hammers at home is the, the power of sort of pot controlling. I think we were talking about pot controlling, but probably the most of anything that we've discussed through this discussion. And it, it's funny because that doesn't sound like an aggressive move, pot controlling. It sounds like a, a sort of a weak move. But in, in that particular chapter, it really hammered home just that idea because you can induce people to do things or give the illusion of fold equity when you've got something where you're going to snap people off on the river where I think most people think like, well, yeah, I got to, I got to fire again here, you know? And I, so I agree with you, John. I think that, um, and Steve, I think we both, you guys both mentioned that. It's just, it's an interesting concept from a player that I already knew before reading this book of his, having had read some more of his, how hyper aggressive he is, that that is more of a, a pre-flop hand range scenario of how he plays. But after that, how, how much he pot controls and how that's, how important that is in a in a you know multi-table tournament in the long run, especially you know extrapolated over many many tournaments. So, 
Well, the other side effect that that gives you is it gives you balance. Because now, even when you have it, you aren't necessarily making the aggressive player doing the aggressive move. So now, when you check, it doesn't mean you don't have it. And when you bet, it doesn't mean you do have it. So no one can read from your actions exactly what that means, which helps keep your range wider and gives your opponents a harder time on playing correctly against you. Yeah, you'll see your opponent slow down once you've done that. Once, um, you know, I, I think about my situation. I feel like I get floated a lot. And I don't know if I just feel that way, if everybody else is, but I, I feel like people float me a lot, you know, which means if I'm out of position, I, you know, I raise preflop, I get called by somebody in position. And I, and I think people are just floating me because they know I'm pretty aggressive. And so, you know, then I, I continuation bet and they call, and then I check the turn and they almost always bet. And I will fold from time to time because I don't have it. But if I do, if I implement something like this where I actually have top pair or something I feel comfortable with that, you know, just, just calling, I will take that same line where I, I bet the flop, I get called, I check the turn, and then I call both the turn and the river bets, and it shows down and I have the best hand. And kind of to your point, John, it balances my range, but another uh, indirect impact of that is it, it does slow down your opponents. Because then, like you said, if I check the turn, they have to at least think, is he checking to induce or is he checking to, you know, because he missed or has a draw or something like that. So I think it does create that other dynamic where people start going, even if they're not consciously, you know, some of the tournaments we play in, they might not consciously be putting together that a play, you know, was being made on them and how we're doing things. Exactly. But I do think it creates a, a subconscious sort of perspective of, ooh, that guy kind of scares me. And there's so well, much and, and value it, in that. At a minimum, they know that you're not, that just because you check doesn't mean that you are going to fold. That I've, that I've given up, exactly. I, I might be inducing you, and that later becomes, next time they get that exact same scenario, do they go, oh boy, am I walking into a trap here? Versus if you're playing some of the check folds every time, it's like freebie. It's like, here you go, they'll fold. It's like, you don't even think about it anymore, but you, like you said, Steve, you, at least in the tournaments we play, you only have to do that like once. It's not at probably Jonathan's level where like you have to do this tournament over tournament to kind of drill this into people's heads. You do it once or twice and people are like, I, I'm not, I'm, uh, I'm just going to check back. <laughs> yeah. And, and like I said, some people don't even really know what's happening to them. They just know you're either tricky or you scare them a little bit. And and that's enough to get you a walk from time to time, or some free you know some free river cards or whatever. Just that they're a little bit scared that you're you know you're not predictable. So what what else stands out from uh, from chapter nine? Anything else kind of stands out that was sort of the miscellaneous topics chapter? It was such a cool chapter because it was like random in the middle. Of, I don't know if it's the middle of the book, but you know, however far through the book, just to just dump a bunch of like here's some really good things I thought of. <laughs> At one point, but it, I mean, it seemed to fit because then he moved sort of through all the blinds. But um, I, I had wrote down just a hand, just a couple things or whatever that if, if you guys mind uh, going yeah, go through. Well, I, I guess I, I usually kind of write down. I broke as I read through the book. I always broke things down into two things. I always broke them into like, yeah, that's a really good reminder. That's the thing. That's kind of a basic thing you should always kind of keep going back through. And then some. I then I would write down a separate list like. Hmm, I never really kind of considered that before. And in this one, there was just a, I think we've talked about a few, but um, and I really thought, even though we barely talked about it, but that giving the illusion of fold equity, 
So I think his really concrete example of like calling men raises with hands that, you know, have huge implied odds is extremely, extremely profitable because people tend to, when they have their monsters, they'll men raise them because they're trying to get value out of it, especially I would say at like rec poker level. And you very well might stack people when you hit those, just, you know, when you, you flop two pair or better. And I, I also thought it was just an interesting thing to kind of keep in mind that making big calls when you're when you're playing very loose aggressive is kind of the way to go because he talked about the debate between making big calls and making big folds. And I, I think he said, you know, you have to make big calls when you're playing loose, which makes sense because people put you on such a wide range and have no idea. And then making big folds when you're playing tight aggressive is, is kind of important to that style. So I, those are a couple of takeaways that I just kind of writ, wrote down from written down from chapter nine yeah that's good and that's sort of that subcategory of just kind of knowing how other people perceive you uh it, that's that's huge yeah i think the uh you brought up the give the illusion of fold equity and i thought that was pretty uh eye-opening for me because he talks about the size of the pot when you get to the river and sizing your bets to make it look like you could fold to an all-in because of the pot size or your stack size. And those are things that I end up at the river and I'm looking down, I'm going, hey, wait a minute. I only got half a pot bet in front of me here. What what happened? You know, I don't really pay attention to that a lot of times and I get into those spots. And so he talked a lot about your bets going in on the flop and the turn and sizing them such that you have that pot size bet on the river or whatever. So I thought that was really eye-opening there to something to really pay attention to that I've always ignored in the past. I agree. That happens to me too. I get myopic and like, a, you, you, you were heads up in a pot. Like I'm, I'm just trying to win the pot. I'm not. And then all of a sudden, like you said, I'm like, shit, now I've got like a third of a pot bet on me and they're going to snap me off with this. Well, how did I get here? You know, being conscious exactly. of that bet sizing is it, because I was just strictly thinking like, I'm so focused in on like, the bet size, you know, bet size of what I'm doing right in that moment because I'm like, fold or whatever, you know, all those intentions you're going through. I, I, I agree with you. I get into that spot myself a little on it. Jonathan does a great job of like, like think of that ahead. It's, it's all a part of this book is just think of those streets ahead and leave yourself with spots. And I think when we get into those other chapters, we talk specifically how to play, you know, 20, 30 blinds, like kind of the betting four or the eighth. And, you know, those blinds, I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but I, I agree with you. That's happened to me, and I'm sure all of us before we're like, well, I don't have any fold equity now. What am I doing? You know? Exactly. Yeah, and that's one of those things, too, when you talk about being able to think ahead, including, okay, if my goal here with the hand that I have is to get my entire stack in by the river, you know, ideally you start thinking, okay, well, if I go, you know, seven bigs here and 15 on the turn, and then I got 30, you know, or do I need to go you know, 5, 12, 25, or whatever it is, you know, if you're if you're really able to think through all of that in advance, I think that's fantastic. But to me, it shows the the importance then of getting getting down to heads up as soon as possible. Because if you start thinking about what are all the scenarios that could happen, you know, it seems like the more people in the pot, the more scenarios there are. There are and it just seems like, what's the point of planning? Because it could just be, you know, everybody could fold to it could just become absolutely chaotic. Yeah, I think most of the stuff that he talks about, he, you know, it's your heads up against your opponent. Because most most pots, and we know this from just the, when we play, that it mostly ends up very seldom on the river is there more than two people left. You know, it's usually, you know, there might be three or four on the flop, but they'll 
they'll weed themselves out pretty quickly and it'll get down to a heads up situation pretty quick. So, right. But sometimes you see those, you know, the mistakes in bet sizing where you will have, you know, four people to the flop and then somebody bets, you know, <laughs> three, 300 into a pot of 2,500 and, you know, everybody calls and then they bet 400 into the pot of, you know, 4,000. And you, you, so you see that sometimes. And I think, you know, in some cases, I think those rec players are, they have a big hand and they want to keep everybody in some cases they don't know. But I think it just shows you, I mean, how can you possibly consider what scenario you're going to be in if you have that many people left in the pot? So I think there's just, you know, to the rec players that are out there, you know, I think that the more you can hone that down to, to heads up, I think the better in terms of being able to think ahead. All right, any other other thoughts from Chapter 9? Just one more. I, I He's got a little section on big calls or big folds. And I think Derek mentioned that it's uh, if you're aggressive, you got to lean towards big calls, but that I I just have a funny little anecdote because I was playing Jonathan Little style one night at Grand Casino, and it was the deep stack, so we had lots of chips. We were deep stack, so we were playing. I'm playing it, and I got to the I got to the river with garbage, and I had to show, and I was the pre-flop. I was the pre-flop aggressor, right? I came out raising pre-flop and got two or three callers. I made my continuation bet. It got the heads up. And I snuck out a pair or something on the river. I think it was, I had like jack eight. And there was an eight on the river and I won the pot. And so then everybody saw my hand. And so from that moment on, I could not raise a pot without getting two or three callers. So... Yeah, making the big calls and the big folds are great, but you know people are going to find out about you real quick. And then in the tournaments that we play, we may start with deep stacks, but it doesn't take long to get down to that uh, you know 40 to 27 big blind level where you don't have the opportunity to do that anymore. And now you got a reputation. <laughs> it's yeah, it's sometimes it gets tough. Were you able to adjust your game, or what did you do then once that started well, yeah, happening? I, I got I got real tight after that, and I was able to make a couple of of moves. But then my blind or I got down short stacked, and then I didn't get any cards. So it was you know just one of those. That's that's the beauty of these tournaments that we play, right? They're twenty minute blinds, and in you know within an hour you're down to twenty five big blinds. And just to I'm gonna jump in there. Um just as a way of promoting uh, something we have coming up. So after we're done with the Jonathan Little book discussion, uh, the format is going to become more specific to what are some specific questions people have, and then we'll have some of the some some great voices in the poker community reply to that. And one of the one of the first questions we have is a question that a lot of people emailed me, which is kind of what you're getting at right there, which is I seem to be able to build a stack in these tournaments that we play locally, and then the middle the middle of the tournament hits, and I just I just burn through my stack and pretty soon I'm playing short stack, you know, and, and, and how do we approach that? So just kind of as a, as a, as a precursor to what's coming ahead, that's a question that a lot of us recreational players struggle with that we're going to see if we can get some of the, some of the top dogs to talk a little bit about how, how do we tackle that? And maybe it's some of it strategic, some of it psychological, but how do we overcome that hurdle? Nice. I think, I think one of the big things that for me, I've always had to do is, Remember that as the blinds go up, as they represent a larger portion of your stack, 
the more important it is to play more aggressively. And that's kind of fights the natural inclination because when you have lots of chips, you're willing to throw a few splash around early on in the tournament. But actually there, you're not winning hardly anything. It doesn't matter how aggressively you do you play. If you lose a pot, it doesn't matter. But once you start to get short, you cannot afford to let yourself get shorter. So you have to be willing to make moves and you have to be willing to play aggressively at that point. And that's the easiest way, especially in these tournaments. You can start off with a big stack. You can double your stack. Well, then you're not going to be short stacked for two hours instead of one hour. <laughs> but you still have to, in the end, continue to grow that stack. Yeah, I think, yeah, like like what you're saying is, you know, as you get shorter stack, you want to, well, you welcome more variance because you just have to. And I think one of the things that's one of the tricks that's helped me is I don't really pay attention to average stack like I used to. Uh, it's really number of big blinds. But one of the things that's helped me is really having a target, not for necessarily each blind lover or anything, but but I go into a tournament right now and I know roughly 10% of the people are going to get paid, which means if I start with 10,000 chips, when we're in the money, the average stack is 100,000 chips. So I look at that and I said that's really kind of my target is I'm I'm aiming for a hundred thousand chips at least by the time we get in the money. And I think, you know, we get this what happens is, you know, as the people bust out, it becomes a more and more of an impact as you get as you get closer to the money in terms of the average stack if you're worried about that. So we sit there with twenty five or thirty thousand chips and we've tripled up and we think, man, we're in good shape. And we're getting close to the money, but the reality is we really need to triple up again to to be a contender for the title. And so I, you know, I tend to not look at, you know, I got thirty thousand chips and not get too excited about it. I think, oh, that's a nice start, but I've got a long way to go to get to where I want to be by the time we're even in the money. Not much less, you know, looking at winning the tournament. So that's helped me a little bit and helps me keep my foot on the pedal a little bit. Okay, other thoughts from chapter nine. Uh. The only other thing I had uh, was that he recommended you play straightforwardly in big pots. And I kind of liked that idea because obviously when it's a big pot, it's representing more a, a larger percentage of your uh, stack. So you don't want to make any risky plays because you have a chance of losing a large percentage of your stack. And if it's a large pot to the other player, they are less likely to put money in bad, meaning if they're calling you, they've got it. So, you know, play a little more straightforwardly, maybe make smaller bet sizes if you're going to try to steal because they're going to still have a harder time calling because the pot is so large. And that's something I don't always remember to do. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota. Featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit RunAces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks once again 
to uh, to Rob and to Andy and to Derek and to John for providing their input, as well as Jonathan Little. Uh, having a great time learning the game and, and learning with these guys that are a, a great group of guys. So appreciate that. Uh, next week, we will finish this book club with part five, where we start talking about uh, some things related to non-deep stack. As our stack starts shrinking, what are some what are some things that we can do? How do we adjust our playing style? And then after that, we're going to get into some questions that have been submitted by you, the audience, and we're going to pick the brains of some of the world's best players on how they uh, how they approach those things. The first topic I think we're going to do will probably be related to as you have a shrinking stack, as you near the bubble, uh, why is it so often we struggle uh, with with that sort of play as we get toward the later stages, as we get toward the bubble. Uh, we might have a decent stack and all of a sudden it's gone. Uh, how much aggression should we play play with? How much, uh, how much should we keep our foot on the pedal? All of those sorts of questions uh, we're hopefully going to address with our experts in a couple of weeks. So thanks for joining us. If you have any suggestions, uh, please let me know. If you have um, any interest in helping us promote what we're doing, please feel free to do the retweet thing or to send the link out to folks. You can find it at runaces.com slash recpoker or out on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks much. See ya. Good luck on the felt.